the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Frozen Frontiers and Mass Market Madness, Black Swords and a Weepy Cyclops size full of pepper spray. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with author Patrick Childs this time about his new hard science fiction novel, Frozen Orbit. This one is really good. It's got a lot of really cool sense of wonder stuff in the mode of Clark, Heinlein, and Asimov. It's about a voyage to Pluto, and there is some terrifically extrapolated hard science fiction concerning how our astronauts get there, and there's a mystery out there waiting to be solved, of course, and all kinds of hard SF goodness in this one. And Pat Childs tells us all about it in a moment. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The Bay and January mass markets are at booksellers everywhere, and we've got some good ones. First out of the gate for a new decade of Bain mass markets is All the Plagues of Hell by Eric Flint and Dave Freer. The snake god Orkissa has been awakened by Lucia del Mano. Lucia plots to marry and then murder the usurper who now rules Milan, the Condrieta Carlos Forza. On his sides, Forza has only the skill and cunning of his physician Francisco Turner. But will that be enough to save him as Orkissa uncoils all the plagues of hell. Also out in January is Arcad's World by James L. Cambius. Young Arcad is the only human on a distant world. His struggle to survive on the lawless streets of an alien city is disrupted by the arrival of three humans who seek a priceless treasure that might free Earth from alien domination. Arcad risks everything to join them on an incredible quest halfway across the planet. But the deadliest danger comes from treachery and betrayal within the group as dark secrets and hidden loyalties come to light. And finally out in January is the conclusion of the Dark Victory Alien Invasion series. This is a really cool series by Brendan Dubois. This is Black Triumph by Brendan Dubois. While returning to his home unit, 16-year-old U.S. Army Lieutenant Randy Knox's convoy is ambushed by the Alien Creepers. Separated from his fellow soldiers and his canine companion, Randy faces the ultimate horror of every American serviceman to become a prisoner of war of aliens. Well, every American serviceman in his time, at least. Black, well, and maybe every American serviceman. No one would like that, especially if they were mean aliens. Black Triumph by Brendan Dubois, Arcad's World by James L. Cambius, and All the Plagues of Hell by Eric Flint and Dave Freer are now available in mass market format. And that means the ebook prices have dropped significantly, by the way. Out at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Patrick Childs to the podcast. Hey, Pat, how's it going? Going good. Going very well, thank you. Very cool. Patrick Childs has been fascinated by rockets and spaceflight ever since he watched the Apollo missions as a kid in South Carolina. How he ended up as an English major in college is still a mystery, though he eventually overcame this self-inflicted handicap to pursue a career in aviation. He's a graduate of the Citadel, a Marine Corps veteran, and a licensed pilot. He currently resides in Tennessee, around Nashville, I understand, with his wife and sons. Two lethargic Dotsons, and that's, that probably means they're extremely active Dotsons because they just never stop, and a uh, and a bovine cat. Um, out now at go ahead, tell me about this. <laughs> I don't like Dotsons because one jumped up, leaped up when I was a child and bit me in the face. So are these nice Dotsons? They are. They uh, they think they're ten feet tall and bulletproof. And uh, yeah. yeah, dachshunds can be, they're active when they want to be active, but they, these two do a lot of laying around. 
Um, one especially, uh, it's kind of funny. Every time I sit down to write, he's got to be in my lap or next to me for some reason. So I'm probably going to give him co-author credit at some point here. Oh, well, you can dedicate the next one to them. Um, and the one we're talking about now is out now at booksellers everywhere is a great hard science fiction novel by Patrick Childs. It's called Frozen Orbit. And uh, this one has is, is got that, that sort of Arthur C. Clarke, uh, you know, Asimov, Sense of Wonder stuff going, uh, a little Heinlein, uh, um, mechanical cleverness, all kind of great science fiction stuff um, is in Frozen Orbit. Um, maybe we could talk about how you, uh, so it's about, well, we can get into the story. It's, I mean, it's about a, a, a non-FTL regular spaceflight trip to Pluto um, that some things happen on. Uh, but m- maybe get into, te- yeah, um, which we'll talk about because there's some extremely cool stuff. Tell tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you came to write in such in this this sort of vein and and what you like about it and and such. Uh, sure. Um, well, I've always been technically minded, if not technically inclined, and so maybe I have an enthusiast's um, appreciation for things that I. Um, haven't been able to do professionally um you know like i mentioned in my bio i've I've been fascinated with with flying and with rocketry and space uh exploration since uh, as long as i can remember and um i mean i was fortunate enough to see uh, a couple of the uh, apollo launches the last ones when i was a little kid i was like six or seven years old and um and that stuff really stuck with me but um I guess I, I didn't either have the mathematical talent or the self-discipline, one or the other, to uh, um, pursue it in college. You know, I, I still ended up in, in an aviation job um, after my military service, and so I was in flight operations management, and I moved into safety, and um, that's where I spent uh, almost half of my career at my, my last employer, and. Um, you know, but I'd always followed uh, the space program closely. You know, I was very excited to see uh, some of the things coming with private space flight, with, with SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and, and Blue Origin. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I just I would have never thought they'd have gotten as far as they have, and I'm, I'm glad to see it. But that what they were doing kind of sparked my, um, my uh, imagination with fiction. You know, I'd, I'd always had stories rolling around in my head. I, I like to joke. My tagline on Facebook is, I write to make the voices in my head shut up. <laughs> um, you know, again, I've got these stories rolling around in my head. and I had wanted to start writing novels, um, you know, for years. I knew a lot of people do. I'd, I'd had starts and stops with it. I'd done some comic strips in high school and college and that kind of thing. And, um Learned uh, learned a few things about dialogue and, and storytelling from that, and when um, around the time I was ready to start um, getting serious about writing is about the time um, Virgin Galactic came along. You know, Bert Rutan built Spaceship One. We had our first real civilian um, uh, space flight, and what they were wanting to do with it, and what they, what, and granted it's been a long time and they're still having trouble getting off the ground, literally, but what they wanted to do, their intended um, plan was to go from suborbital, you know, joy rides, you know, 15, 20-minute hops up into space and back into some kind of suborbital point-to-point transport. And that made a lot of sense to me if they could pull it off because if you're going to pay a quarter of a million dollars for a 15-minute hop over the, above the atmosphere, then you might be willing to pay something a little bit more to actually get somewhere and do it for longer. So, you know, like I was saying, like an L.A. to Sydney trip in 90 minutes. And I started thinking about that from an airline point of view, that what they wanted to do, would it was, it was really audacious, but if they were able to pull it off, it would look a lot like an airline. And that was a world I knew really well, and I thought, yeah, I could write, I could write some stories out of that. There's a lot of 
strong personality types. There's a lot of colorful people. There's a lot of room for things to go badly that people outside the business, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily know about. And I thought if I could explain that well enough without letting the explanations get in the way of the story, then I could come up with some good stories out of that. And so that was a springboard that, that got me started in this. And um, I've just kind of taken it one step at a time. And so with um, with Frozen Orbit, this was definitely outside of of the the world that I had been writing. In. I was able to weave one of my original characters from one of my first couple of books, Perigee and Farside, into Frozen Orbit, uh, kind of in a minor in a supporting role later in the book. And I was really happy to to uh, find a way to do that kind of happened by accident but you know with this this one is definitely uh, more traditional science fiction um, than my other two my other two might be more techno thriller than they are sci-fi well what is um so why would anybody want to go to pluto because it's there (laughs) (laughs) um yeah um you know what fascinated me and and the, the seeds for this story first came into my head, you know, four or five years ago um, with the New Horizons mission, you know, because this was going to be the first time we'd ever laid eyes on on Pluto, the farthest planet in the solar system. And, you know, I'm still calling it a planet. And, um, you know, everything we'd had up to that point were really fuzzy images. Even the best pictures from Hubble were just, um, um, you know, like in the 16-bit, you know, game animation. Um so it just it, it it just got me as this as this mystery that was so far out there. I mean, the distances in space are just hard to comprehend in the first place, and and what it takes to get there. But that it's that it's so far out had not been hit, didn't have human eyes laid on it before, and now that we have, um, you know, my gosh, the, the things they the things they've seen and and. Um, um, detected there, I think are are definitely worth a closer look. Um, just the thing, you know, seas of frozen nitrogen and methane and icebergs full of it, and just all the weirdness there. And I guess that's what it is. It's just a lot of weirdness. There's so much, there's so much room in our own solar system for for cosmic weirdness that you know I feel like some I don't feel like it's been mined enough for stories. So I'm kind of happy to to dive into that. So, how do you, how would you get there? There's really only, I mean, you're not gonna get there in conceivable time with with um, with like chemical rockets, right? It's gonna have to be something else. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, some kind of fusion drive is the only way you're gonna do it um, in a reasonable amount of time. I mean, it took New Horizons nine years to get there. Um, you know, doing it the old-fashioned way, and so. With this story, you know, when we were getting ready to get our first pictures of Pluto, it, you know, it popped in my head that, well, what if you know they found something that nobody expected, and what if it was unnatural? <laughs> and well, how would it have gotten there? And I don't, I'm, I'm not really into, I really wasn't into some kind of space alien explanation for this. I wanted it to be human, and really, the only way to get there is going to be some kind of, with our current technology. Uh, some kind of nuclear pulse drive, you know, like the Orion concept where you just, you've got a spacecraft with a big pusher plate and complicated shock absorbers and you start lighting off nukes behind it. And, you know, the, the, the studies they did to this, did of this back in the sixties and seventies, um, you know, that I read about, you know, indicated you could get a, you could get up to a halfway decent percentage of light speed if you, um, if you accelerated like that long enough, that it was conceivable. And I thought, well, there's all I need to go running off with this story. Um, what country would have been crazy enough to build somebody, something like that? Well, the old Soviet Union. And so that's um, that's kind of where that came from. That, that That's what they were going to find out there that they didn't expect. They were going to find a derelict Soviet spacecraft built around an Orion nuclear pulse drive. Yeah, and this is not a spoiler for the book uh, because we we say it on the back cover copy. <laughs> that's what. So, um, 
I mean, sometimes we we don't want to get into spoilers here, and but there is something else that it could that that the Russians found. Let's put it that way. Um, and and that is, and the Russians didn't. So how does it how does it start? So the um, they they came back in a manner. They didn't come back alive. Um, but uh, the first chapter, something returns. And that's really what uh, what sets off this this desire to go, right? Uh, what is that? Yeah, uh, what returns is the Soyuz um, capsule that was attached to the spacecraft. So the the spacecraft is built around um, the concept that came up with is built around you know an Almaz module, which was kind of their core space station modules that they had in the uh, in the seventies and eighties. And you know, it had an LK uh, lander, which they actually built um, attached to it. They had a couple of Soyuz modules, you know, to use to get back and forth from the thing. And that's what comes back 40 years later is the Soyuz. And um, there are people still inside the Russian government that would just as soon not see that thing come back. And so they make it go away. Before it can before it can reach Earth, that gets people's attention, and um, you know, it sends somebody at NASA who's paying attention to it, uh, investigating and find out where the heck did this come from. So they get they get just in, they get just enough uh, um, of an observation of it to determine that uh, that thing did not come out of near Earth space. It came from somewhere very deep out there and very fast, and you know. It, you know, if you know how to do the math, it doesn't take a lot to figure out, um, extrapolate the path back and see where something originated. So, so um, the uh, the mission manager of our mission, Owen Harriman, uh, tracks down this Russian scientist before the before the mission is is underway and finds out about this uh, mission that that was called Archangel, um, or whatever the Russian equivalent is. Um, his name is, is Ryzov, the uh, the scientist, and um, he's. It, who is it that? Because part of the book is the narrative of the cosmonauts, or in particular, it's a journal left by um, Vladimir Vashinko, um, and who's the the mission commander. So, how does that come into the possession of our crew who study this as they're going out? Yeah, that comes into their possession through um, my old Russian scientist, who was the, the last guy left that was part of the project. And um, he actually has the um, – I don't want to get too much into spoilers here. So the, the crew is provided with the official transcripts of the mission. You know, there It's still you know, very secret. There aren't many people inside the government who know about it. And um, the uh, original transcripts are kind of squirreled away by my old Russian scientist, Ryzov, and he gets them to Owen, who in turn is able to get them to the crew. And so um, my my main character, Jack Templeton, um, who has a background as a Russian translator before he became an astronaut, um, spends uh, most of the mission translating these old uh, these old records on the way out there, and you know begins to see um, signs of maybe a, a simple code buried in there too. Um, that uh, uh, my Russian commander Vashinko wanted to get the information back, but he didn't want to make it real obvious. So, so uh, it, it, but what it provides is um, a counter, a, sort of a, a secondary narrative that we're able to follow. And so we, as readers, discover as as the uh, as our astronauts do um, some of the stuff that was going on with with that mission. Um, tell us a little bit about the Magellan Two um, and how it works. The Russians had this uh, this craft that was that was sheer. Uh, it was, it was a, a Russian thing, um, and the character, and and you often have Jack compare the way that Russians do things with the way that American space program does things. Yep, his bureaucracy is constant, right? <laughs> um, the uh, the NASA ship is the the drive system is act really when you think about it, it's kind of similar in um, 
this was something that I read about a couple of years ago and was intrigued by. Uh, it was one of the things that, that I had to get right in my head before I wrote this story is that, you know, I don't want the technology to overtake the story, but it, it from in my mind, it's got to work. It's got to make sense. You know, I want it to make sense for myself, and, and I want it to make sense for readers who who really understand this stuff, and I don't want them to laugh too hard <laughs> at it when, it, when I uh, put it in the books. So there is um, a, 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 a pulsed fusion drive concept that, that's being toyed around with right now that um, basically takes a um, um, blob of hydrogen plasma and compresses it almost instantaneously inside a shell of lithium foil. And, you know, so that compression causes the, the plasma to fuse, and the lithium also adds mass to it, um, so you get more effective exhaust. And so you just keep um, pulsing these, you know, globs of, uh, of plasma um, in, into a fusion reaction at the, at the rear of the spacecraft, and it works a lot like an Orion drive, but instead of, you know, using repurposed bombs, you're... you're finessing it a little bit more. And and that's that's how uh, my Magellan NASA spacecraft is able to get out to Pluto. And um, and you know there obviously there's some things other things at play here. Any any ship that's going to go that far in a at a decent speed, you know, be able to make the trip inside of a year, it's going to be mostly fuel. Um, so uh, that led me to um, write a scenario into it also where they basically have to get refueled and resupplied at Jupiter. So it's a two-stage mission. And, you know, phase one is um, Jupiter expedition. You know, if if they can rendezvous with the resupply ship and refuel, then they do a flyby of Jupiter, they're dropping some probes there, and then it's on to Pluto. If they can't rendezvous, then they're going to turn around, slow down, and make their way back to Earth. So, um, I like that idea because I thought it I thought it kept things a little more realistic. It kept uh, you know um, mass ratios a little more realistic, and um, and uh, you know it enables some some drama along the way too. Yeah, what is the um, life like aboard this thing? Um, is there is the acceleration produces something that makes people about feel about as heavy as normal or what what happens no i mean it, we wouldn't be able to build a ship that big that could go that that long enough i mean if we could they could if they could accelerate at 1g they could get to pluto in a month um so i worked it out to where they they did a constant acceleration at a tenth of a g and um so the ship is oriented that way too so um it it's not like the space station or something where they can just do everything in free fall. Everything has to be oriented towards, you know, down down the long axis of the ship. And it was the same way with the Soviet when I came up with, with Archangel. Um, but, yeah, one-tenth, and then uh, I did a lot of work with tables and data I found off the Atomic Rockets website, which I think is just a fantastic resource for, for hard sci-fi writers. There's so much there. It's just all in one place. Um, and I was able to, to uh, figure out that a tenth of a G, they could accelerate out for maybe three months, coast for another three, and then turn around and decelerate for, the, for um, another three. That's real, real rough back of the envelope. English major science going on there, but uh, yeah, that would you know that would keep life mostly normal for them. One tenth isn't a lot of gravity, but it's in, you know um, enough for storytelling purposes. Yeah, I guess it's like the moon is. Um, so tell us about the crew. Let's talk about the characters. You've got you mentioned Jack. Um, there's four of them, right, um, on the Magellan. Uh, Jack, Tracy, Roy, and Noel. <laughs> is, is that right? Um, who are these people, and why would they? Uh, why are they sent? Well, Roy and Noel are. Roy's a mission commander. Noel's his wife. They're both older, um, more experienced astronauts. Um, you know, Roy's background is a hot stick pilot. 
and they're on kind of as the parental supervision. <laughs> I, I wrote them as being being a little bit older, uh, middle aged, and um, Jack and Tracy are a little bit younger. You know, I, I envision them in their say early thirties, and there's more of a brother and sister or almost boyfriend girlfriend dynamic going on with them. Uh, Roy and Noel, the married couple. Um, part of what I write about is you know, for a mission that long and that that far out, um, NASA enlists a lot of psychiatrists to help select crew members. And one of the first things that they settle on is, well, we want a married crew on this if we can if we can get it. And then if we can't, then we want the other two to be as compatible as humanly possible. And so, and so, um, and Jack ends up being one that he's got to get on the mission. Um, once they find the once they find the uh, um, background on the Russians, you know they've got one guy that they can put on this that can um, help unwind the mystery that they'd want to have on a Russian spacecraft when they get there. So, um, and that's how Tracy ends up on it. Tracy is there because they determined she was the one most compatible with Jack and. It's off to the races of both of them. Even though when it comes to things like um, worldview and that sort of thing, they're kind of diametrically opposed to each other. Jack is a more uh, secular genesis type, and uh, from Seattle, Tracy is a uh, small-town country girl from Kentucky with a little more traditional religious background, and I think that created a lot of opportunity for um, some tension and some ongoing discussion. Like I envisioned them basically having kind of a running argument all the way out to the end of the solar system on where did we come from? What's our place in the universe? Um, you know, is humanity unique? That sort of thing. Yeah, some really cool philosophical discussion that is um, character-based and fun to follow. Also, forgot to mention the uh, the fifth crew member, which is Daisy. Um, that that is sort of uh what if Hal hadn't gone crazy <laughs> and was kind of a girl <laughs> yeah and i had to, i had to throw a couple of 2001 call outs in there there's just no way around it um you know that's that's one thing that i don't know for me it seems like realism's sake too if you throw in a little bit of dialogue cuz if real life if this were real life, these are all space nerds. They're going to be making Star Wars references and jokes like that. And you know, if, if a computer talks to them, they're going to call it Hal at some point. Um, but yeah, I, that's how I look at it. They would need something like a, a ship going that far, that that deep into nowhere. It, it's it's going to need some kind of onboard mission control because it won't be long before you're um, out of any kind of meaningful reach. Uh, of ground support, so you need something that can do onboard diagnostics and troubleshooting and back up the astronauts and decision making and that kind of thing. And so that's where Daisy came from. And so, and Daisy is on the verge of, I mean, it's artificial intelligence, obviously, even you know, on the verge of being self-aware. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, could 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 Daisy pass a Turing test? And how would we know if it really did? You know, because if it, if if she's really intelligent, she might not want us to know that she is. She might fail a test on purpose. And um, and and I, I liked it too because it was, it it's kind of like a foil for uh, Jack and Tracy also that, you know, Jack's got two women he can't figure out <laughs> that he's got a that he's um, stuck with on this mission. And Daisy's one of them. Yeah, and the, yeah, that that interplay is fun. And Daisy is um, is a very interesting character as as it she develops and and doesn't turn into a murderous sort of beast. Um, I don't think that's a big spoiler because that's not where we're going here. It really ends up being hugely important. Without you know, I didn't want it to overtake the story, but um, you know, obviously she's going to become very important to Jack much later into the story. Yeah. Um, so they. They get to Jupiter. They go into Europa. Um, who is which? Is it Tracy that is the uh, biologist? That's uh, no. Tracy's another pilot. Um, Noel. 
so yeah, Noelle's a biologist, and so she's a she's a doctor, and she her her uh, PhD thesis um, is basically being tested at Europa. So during their flyby of Jupiter, they're letting go um, a series of probes. It's basically designed off a cluster bomb. <laughs> they're gonna um, they're gonna bomb Europa with with penetrators that can get through the ice and and get probes down into what they think is you know the liquid ocean underneath and look for life. And so that and that's Noelle's thing. And Noelle is kind of ambivalent about going to Pluto. She just as soon stay at Jupiter um, and, and explore there. So um, she has a little bit of hesitancy to to overcome before they go on with phase two. There's some cool science going on that you that you bring in. Um, what is it that you look for if you're looking for life, and what what does that even mean to look for life? Well, um, you know, you're going to be looking for um, for those telltale signs of you know some kind of organism that's metabolizing, um, you know, well in this case, you know, oxygen out of the water. Um, you know, they're going to be looking for signs of of uh, you know, methane. They're going to be looking for. Um, you know, they're going to be looking for qualities in the water to to see if it's. Um, um, you know, not con not contaminated. That's not the right word. I'm not a biologist, so this is my weak point. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're going to be looking for um, again the the kind of chemical traces that that you might expect to find for for life underwater. You know, if they can't image something directly, they want to see evidence that something is there. So, and so they're quick pass by Jupiter. That's um, that's what Noel's looking for. Yeah. the um, The other thing that that was kind of fascinating was um, to me was your uh, your somewhat extended discussion of the Fermi paradox. What was Tracy's um, response on that? I think she kind of a she and Daisy kind of agreed. Yeah, that. That's one that I was writing about this because it's something that I, that I've long struggled with myself. You know, a lot of their dialogue, her and Jack's dialogue back and forth over this is um, arguments I've had in my own head. Well, if not this, then what? And what if the answer to the Fermi paradox, which is you know, if if there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, why haven't we been able to detect it yet? Um, what if the answer is as simple as we haven't detected any yet because there's nothing else out there. We're the first. Um, and if that's the case, then what does that mean for us as a species? You know, that, that puts kind of a, a heightened responsibility on us and, um, and it should make us think a, a little bit differently about, I guess, how we conduct our affairs and, how we look at our place in the universe, you know, if if you believe that God told us to go forth and be fruitful and multiply, um, well, that may not just be limited to here on earth. You know, it may be uh, it may be that, uh, that that was intended for us to take life and spread it out into the universe. That uh, you know, maybe our horizons are are bigger than we think they are. Yeah, and um, there is there's a lot of wonder. Um, evoking in here, uh, especially when they go on the EVAs that they need to go on. Um, Jack and Tracy, I think, uh, that went on them to, they seem to have like opposite reactions when they get out there. One of them is. Yeah, Jack definitely embraces getting out and floating around more than Tracy does. Tracy's a pilot and she would just as soon stay on the, stay on the command deck and fly the spacecraft and not get out and float around in a suit and um she's a little apprehensive about it and um you know she can definitely appreciate the the vistas in the experience but there's also that sense of of just floating out in the middle of absolute nothing that that is terrifying to her and i i kind of explored that because i I think that's how I would feel. Um, you know, I, I would be torn between the, the two sensations. Um, you know, seeing these amazing sights and having this amazing experience versus trying not to throw up in my helmet. 
The other thing that you bring in, and I, this is probably from your background, um, is a sense of the the administration and what's going on back home and how it's affecting. Um, maybe get into that a little bit because it's really interesting because there's sort of a political maneuvering going on um, that seems very realistic to me. Yeah, that um, I think that comes from well, a couple of things. There, you know, there is a back, some background of this. I mean, um, like working in airline operations, like I like I have in the past, is I feel like it's a decent introduction into what that world might be like in spaceflight. Um, just the personality types, the the kind of rapid fire problem solving that goes on. But then when you get into the political aspect of it, people people with agendas, um, you know, it's like I joked about before. You know, the bureaucracy is constant, whether whether it's under communism or whether it's under you know, democratic republic. You're going to have a class of people that, in the end, they're looking out for themselves, and that drives things. And it and it often doesn't drive things in directions that make sense for anybody else on the outside. Um, but some of the political maneuverings, especially the the old callbacks to the Cold War, um, it was kind of an unconscious shout out to '80s techno thrillers. Um, is I, I'm a I'm a huge Tom Clancy fan, and w- one of the things that I had in mind when I started writing was is if he wrote science fiction, this is you know what I think it would look like, and that that might be the kind of science fiction that I would really enjoy. And some of his books were kind of borderline science fiction, but, um, and that, and that's kind of where my mind has always been drawn to is what could we be doing right now or in the very near future if we were really serious about it. But then when you get into the, uh, but then when you get, you know, you can't avoid the political interplay, you know, there's, there's currents within NASA that, that want to pull it in different directions. Um, when I, when I was researching this, you know, and I was reading about the Planetary Protection Office, um, I had no way of of knowing whether or not they were a huge force inside NASA and how strident they might be about the whole, you know, um, Boy Scout leave no trace um, mentality. And I've been told that it's actually not too far from the truth. <laughs> so... Um, I thought that would be a pretty good, um, a pretty good foil for the people on Owen's side that, that just want to make spacecraft go and explore and send people to exciting places. Yeah, so it's a cool dynamic, and it affects the outcome of the of the story. Um, you know, there's obviously the question of if they the Russians went to all this trouble to build a spacecraft and send it all the way out to the Kuiper Belt, why didn't it come back? Um, you know, that's the that's the key mystery that, that Jack is trying to unwind with these uh, with these uh, mission logs that he's translating on the way out there, which I should point out for people that they haven't read the book yet. The crew doesn't know what's out there until launch day. They've been training for this for two years and thinking that they're they're doing this at Jupiter, and if they can make the rendezvous with the supply craft, then they're going to do phase two all the way to Pluto. They have no idea that they're actually going out there on a salvage mission. And again, until launch day, things are kept that secret, and the stuff is literally plopped in their laps over the the, the crew breakfast uh, the morning of launch. It, it changes the character of, of and the reasons that they feel like they need to to go on their missions as well. Um, we have a really good story that you uh, that you wrote as sort of a support for this um, up at Bain.com. Well, that that's uh, from Victor uh, Vashenko's point of view, right? What's the title of that again? Uh, Next Giant Leap. And yeah, that's about his, that's the the story of his landing on Pluto 40 years earlier. And because um, I. It's described some in the book, but it's described, you know, um, secondhand through, uh, you know, reading the transcripts of the mission logs. It's not really described so much from a first-person point of view. So this is his first-person view of of what it was like to um, land on a place of so utterly alien. Yeah, and if you want to, that, that's an interesting point of in, of things that happen in the book because they're worried about 
the way that materials will react in this incredible cold and the weird uh the weird environment they're in right yeah and some of that i took from uh, way way back uh, personal experience it's just extrapolating into these extreme environments but um back when um gosh almost 30 years ago when i was in the marines I was in an Arctic warfare training exercise up in Norway, uh, up, um, up above the Arctic Circle. We had really extreme variations in climate, and the farther you got inland, the colder it got. And it it, it could get so cold up there that I had heard stories of of um, windows shattering if you slammed a car door too hard, or, you know, the metal itself cracking, um, and that kind of thing, and. Uh, that the, the the place we were at the time wasn't too far from where they uh, filmed Hoth for the Empire Strikes Back, so <laughs> which was cool. Everybody loved that because we had you know we're parking jets and revetments carved out of the side of mountains and stuff like that. So every, everybody was on a Star Wars kick back then. But it was yeah, I had all that stuff in mind when I was writing. You know what it would be like to do an EVA on a planet that cold. I mean, where you're maybe 10 or 20 degrees above absolute zero, you better be really careful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really, that's really cool and contributes to the, uh, to the sense of, uh, the sense of wonder and the, and the weirdness of the whole thing. Um, what, uh, what, what are you working on these days at the moment? Patrick? So I'm working on, um, I'm working on, um, a, uh, uh, another full length novel that, goes back to the um, worlds I set up with my first two um, books, uh, Perigee and Farside. So it's uh, it's about the son of one of the major characters in, in those books that's now on the cusp of, of adulthood. He's in the new Space Force, and um, he's actually getting assigned to a, a patrol vessel. I've um, come up with this... Um, uh, nuclear-powered, um, basically a cis-lunar patrol vessel, the first of its kind, and and that's going to interact with um, a mission, uh, with a, a private mission by this uh, wealthy couple that is getting into asteroid mining, and it's a bit of a publicity stunt, and what I'm based that off of is uh, I don't know if, if you or any of the listeners maybe are familiar with the uh, Inspiration Mars idea from several years ago. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the first space tourists, Dennis Tito, who's pretty wealthy in his own right, um, and was actually involved in the, the Viking program in the 70s, um, it funded this concept. There was a lot of studies that we had a, a, a few windows of opportunity where you could send a manned mission to Mars just to do a flyby. You could do it on a free return trajectory, so you could only you only need a one or two burns to leave Earth and get it on the way to Mars, whip it around the backside of Mars, and back to Earth um, with very little correction or anything else. Um, and you could do it inside of like 18 months. And they had a there was one window where you could do a Mars and Venus flyby. Uh, on the same orbit. And, of course, nobody could ever get enough funding to really make it happen, which is uh, disappointing. It is audacious, but I would have loved to have seen it happen. But so the part of the uh, spark for the story is this couple is um, out on a mission just like that, near future. They're going to do um, uh, a flyby of Mars, or a distant asteroid. I haven't decided which one yet. I'm still kind of early in the process. I'm, I'm going back and forth on it. But contact is lost with them. And so this is a really high publicity mission. Um, so a lot of people want to know what happened. There's a lot of pressure on the government to do something about it. So my other character on this new, you know, cis lunar patrol vessel, they get tasked with intercepting them. Uh, and um, basically rescuing this couple. And so they finally get in a position to intercept their capsule, and there's nobody left in it. They're gone. They've disappeared. And so now we're off the races. What happened to them? 
And so that's going to get into some exploration of other countries with other interests in space that might compete with ours, and maybe they're not very nice. <laughs> and um, and that's where it's going right now. I've got it. I've got it. I've got the the plot sketched out. I'm about a quarter of the way into the um, into the first draft of it, and there's still there's still a lot that. Um, could go either way right now with this story. So, um, out now at booksellers everywhere, and it is out there and available uh, <laughs> available for, for readers is Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs. Um, Pat, thanks so much for uh, talking to us about Frozen Orbit. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 51 Now what do we have here? Shikasho asked as he strolled over to where his men had secured the source of the strange magic he'd sensed earlier. The villagers had fled in terror as they'd fallen from the sky, giving them a bit of peace in this corner of the village square. The woman was on her knees, with a lost house wizard holding onto each arm. Orlatar was behind her with the point of his sword pressed against her neck. If her strange powers had any offensive capabilities, it was doubtful she'd be able to use them before Bolotar severed her spine. Careful, Sekaso. This one's got claws. Bolotar gestured toward Vilsaro, who was lying in the mud, throat slashed ear to ear, gurgling and staring at the sun. There was nothing that could be done for him. He grabbed her first, but she surprised him, and the blade came out of nowhere and damn near took his head off. That was another valuable wizard lost on this awful, wasteful mission for the Grand Inquisitor. From what Sikasso had seen of the destruction of Angruvidal, he seriously doubted there would be very many fragments left, large enough to be worth their effort. He'd never seen a piece of black steel so thoroughly consumed before. Sikasso was feeling very annoyed, but perhaps something could be salvaged from this mess. Sikasso picked up the knife that had been used on Vilsaro. It was a thin, practical blade, sharp enough to shave with. He walked to the captive woman. Who are you? The woman had her head down, hair covering her face, and didn't respond, so he stuck the knife under her chin and lifted it was either raise her head to face him, or get cut. She chose to face him, which was good because it turned out she was pretty enough that Sikasa would have hated to mar such a nice face. Tell me your name. She glared at him. There was rage in this one. Thera. House and caste. None. You're no untouchable. You're too tough to be of the first, and workers know how to hide their anger better. Warrior, then, and probably thrown out to keep from drawing the attention of the Inquisition when you started to display such a unique talent. 
Her silent look of disgust told Sacasso that he was close. Who are you? I'll have it out of you eventually, one way or the other. Vain. Vassal house to Macau, daughter of the warrior caste. But I wasn't thrown out. I left of my own accord during a house war. They think I'm dead, so leave my family out of this. You mistake us for inquisitors. Not even close. We're merely scholars, dedicated to understanding the mysteries. Go to hell. He backhanded her in the face. Then Sicasso glanced around the square, which was still sweltering with unnatural heat. They were surrounded by the bodies of soldiers who'd tried to stop the Black Heart. After Thera's bizarre manifestation, they were being watched by a large group of frightened workers. But they were holding back. The rest of the Somsak raiders all seemed preoccupied by their Thakur's antics across the square, on the other side of the ditch. Sikasso had no idea what those fools had gotten up to after the precious sword had blown up, and he was mostly disappointed he'd wasted such a valuable piece of demon flesh on that idiot, Nadan. Frustrated, Sikasso turned back to Thera. Her lip was split open and bleeding, but she was still giving him a defiant look that was just begging to be sliced off. I only know of two sources for magic. The ancient and ever-dwindling supply of black steel, and whatever we can wring from the remains of sea demons. Yet yours comes from neither. What is your source? I don't know, she muttered. Sukasa put the knife against her cheek. Really? Carve away, you bastard! I don't know! Some fool was carrying on about her being a prophet of the old gods while we circled. Bolotar said. That's what her illusion was supposed to be about, I think. It wasn't an illusion, Thera said. The voice comes from somewhere else and works through me. That's all I know. Sikasa had been on the ground at the time of the manifestation, and he'd clearly heard the voice inside his head. It had been rather impressive. You have an intriguing power. I believe you're telling the truth. He removed the knife. Yuval, fly her back to camp and wait for us there. We've got some cleaning up to do here first. There are far too many witnesses. She struggled against the wizards, but years of magical augmentation had left the men of the Lost House far stronger than they appeared. Let go of me, or you'll regret this. Doubtful. You'll remain my prisoner until I discover the true source of your power. Then afterwards, if you are truly the troublemaking prophet they've been hunting in the South, I'll sell you to the Grand Inquisitor. Perhaps it'll even be enough to make up for this mess. Bolotar. He nodded toward his subordinate, who lifted his sword and struck the struggling woman with the pommel hard enough to knock her unconscious. Flying while carrying extra weight was difficult enough, without cargo flailing about the whole time, too. The wizards let her collapse into the mud so Yuval could change form. You couldn't very well hold on to someone when your arms were turning into wings. That's what feet were for. Sakasso, we've got a troublemaker. Molotov pointed with his sword at a thin man who was heading their way. He was dressed as a merchant, but had just picked up a discarded Somsak crossbow and was trying to figure out how to use it against them. That's the one who was carrying on about her speaking for the old gods. Want me to burn him? I've got him. Save your magic. We still have a village to scrub. With Vilsaro missing his throat and Yuval carrying the woman back to camp, that meant he, Bolotar, and Choval had a lot of work to do. As Sikasso began walking toward the religious fanatic, the area around them darkened as magic was called upon. Yuval was the biggest of them, and in his flying form he seemed huge, with a wingspan that covered a vast portion of the square. His gleaming black talons locked around Thera's arms, and with several mighty beats he took to the air. Snap! The fake merchant figured out 
how to fire the crossbow. Sikasso smiled as the speeding bolt missed Yuval by several feet. Your aim needs work, Sikasso shouted. Obviously terrified, but determined to stop the abduction of his prophet, the fake merchant picked up another bolt from a dead man's quiver and went about trying to figure out how the hand crank worked on the powerful device. That amused Sikasso to no end. Yuval was already far above the village and searching for a good air current to carry him back to the mountaintops. Bolotar, kill all the hole diggers. Choval, start on the sword, swingers, and make sure you secure Ashok's body. As long as the Inquisition thinks he's still alive, they'll pay us to keep following him. He started toward the balding man with a crossbow. I'll catch up. Hold on. How's he still alive? Choval asked, sounding incredulous. Sikasa turned his head to see what his man was talking about. The young wizard was looking toward the bridge, but then he was struck in the chest with a spear thrown across the square so hard that it swept him off his feet and slammed him back into the side of a house. Choval hung there, limp, pinned like a butterfly. Ashok! Sikasa bellowed as another of his valuable wizards died. There was no way the protector should still be alive. But there he was, blood-soaked and determined, limping across the bridge toward them. The Somsak parted to let Ashok through. Burn him, Sikasso shouted at Borlatar, as Ashok bent over and picked up a discarded battle axe. Burn him to ash! Borlatar was a master of the Inferno. No matter how resilient the protector's secret rites made their bodies, nothing could survive that kind of fury. Circles of darkness formed around Bolotar's outstretched hand as the chunk of demon bone in his fist was consumed. The air around Ashok shimmered with heat waves, and the fallen protector stumbled, clutching at his eyes. The somsack around him fled, crying about witchcraft, as wood smoked, leather scorched, and cloth caught fire. Ashok cried out in pain as he was engulfed in a sphere of intense heat. Borlatar cackled. This time, the fake merchant's aim was true. Borlatar lowered his dark-circled hand and looked down at the crossbow bolt sticking out of his chest. He seemed surprised by the sudden pain, but not nearly as surprised as when Ashok came out of the faltering fire, covered the distance, and cut off both of Bolotar's legs in one swing. The wizard went flipping through the air, screaming. As he shrugged out of his flaming coat, Ashok limped toward Sikasso. He was a powerful wizard, possibly one of the greatest in the world, yet when Sikasso looked into Ashok's maddened eyes, he saw only his death there. His men were gone. Sikasa was proud, but pragmatic, and knew when it was time to retreat. The lost house had claimed the girl with the mysterious power. That would do for today. Taking up one of the demon bone chunks tied to his belt, Sikasa called upon the unnatural energy inside. Magic was made of tiny bits, invisible to the eye, and as those fled from the bone and into his body, Reality changed. Light was vanquished as the bone was consumed. And within the unnatural darkness that existed in the space between, the rules of the physical world no longer applied. His limbs twisted and distorted as the tiniest bits of his flesh were moved and redistributed. Sakasa wheeled his body into the familiar form of the giant vulture and leapt into the sky. A few mighty beats of his wings, and he was soaring upward, away from the damnable protector and his... There was a flash of heat in his left wing, followed immediately by a searing pain. Ashok had thrown the axe. End over end, it continued past him, but he could no longer follow it into the air. Instead, Sikasso spiraled helplessly toward the ground. His left wing was gone. The wizard landed hard in the mud, the magic ruptured and reality flooded back in. As his body and senses returned to normal, Sikasso began to scream as blood pumped from the stump where his arm had been. Panicked, he looked around. 
A long black wing lay a few feet away, shedding obsidian feathers. It slowly melted into a severed arm, and the feathers turned to spatters of blood. The protector was coming for him. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jenkowitz. And the eerie echo of superconducting electric tea being served among clinky-clacky robots out on the Kuiper Belt. Plus, thanks and praise to Patrick Childs, author of Frozen Orbit. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 